from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, the White House warned this week that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could happen at any time. The buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border has challenged the Biden administration's global military strategy. And a fascinating thing happened last week that caught my attention and much of the world's. Russia's President Vladimir Putin met with China's President Xi Jinping in Beijing as a show of solidarity between the two countries, right before the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics. It was the first face-to-face meeting Xi has held in nearly two years with the world leader. While many Western nations called for a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, there was Putin, standing right next to Xi, flaunting his relationship with communist China to the rest of the world. And the question of many minds in the West right now is, how far is the Biden administration willing to go to defend Ukraine's border against the Russian invasion? And will they stand up to China's threats towards Taiwan? We seem to have come to an initial face-off with NATO and the Western democratic nations on one side and autocratic Russia and China standing in solidarity and thumbing their noses at us. How we manage these global challenges moving forward, I think is a real test for the entire world and will in fact define a great deal of the future of the human race. Here to help provide some context to the events of the last several weeks, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Weifeng Zhong. Dr. Zhong is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you for joining me in Newt's World. 
You know, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with a bit of your background because it's really impressive. A PhD and a Master of Science in Managerial Economics and Strategy from Northwestern University, Master of Economics and Master of Philosophy degrees in Economics from the University of Hong Kong, BA in Business Administration from Shantou University in China, currently a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, focusing on bridging natural language processing and machine learning to economic policy studies. You also study political economy, U.S.-China economic relations, China's economic issues, and fairness in artificial applications. And you have been a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You were born in China and raised there. You first came to the U.S. to attend graduate school. So, I mean, first of all, let me just say I'm impressed you've had quite a career already. First, Mr. Speaker, thank you very much for having me, and it's a pleasure to chat with you. So it's been a journey, like you said, <laughs> coming all the way from growing up in China and coming all the way to now being in the United States and doing policy research in the U.S.-China relations area. What part of China were you born in? I was born in the province of Guangdong, which is right next to Hong Kong. Which was really the first area to commercially really develop in the modern period. Right. And I was born actually soon after the beginning of the economic reform program in China in late 1970s. And the year I was born was also the first year the one-child policy was officially implemented in the province that I grew up in. Well, I'm curious, how big an impact was that? There was a gigantic break with historic Chinese patterns, wasn't it? Right. So I remember growing up, the atmosphere in terms of the economy was more emphasis on reforming the economic system, being more commercial, entrepreneurial, and everything is about growth, and it's about learning from the West, which is basically learning from the best. And that eventually led to, of course, the theft of intellectual property in other countries as well. But the general spirit of catching up with the United States is the main focus. If I understand it correctly, and feel free to educate me on this, but growing up in Guangdong, you would have spoken, what, Cantonese rather than Mandarin? That's right. And that's also the language spoken in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is also a place very special to me because that was my first stop after leaving mainland China. After I finished college, I went to Hong Kong, spent a few years there, and people spoke the same language there. And after spending a few years in Hong Kong, I came to Northwestern for my PhD. How different in that period was life for the average person in Hong Kong from life in Guangzhou? When I went to Hong Kong, it was in mid-2000s. And that was the time when the tide was already starting to turn. So that was about less than 10 years since the handover from the British back to China. And we have seen back then already that more and more key positions in the Hong Kong government and in the Hong Kong society being gradually taken over by pro-Beijing people. The economy was doing well, and it was more advanced, obviously, compared to Guangdong, despite the fact that Guangdong is probably the most open-minded place in mainland China. If I would put a simple analogy to it, I think Hong Kong at that time was probably 0.5 of a free world. <laughs> now is, I would say, maybe 0.1. It's been sad to watch the end of the idea of two systems in one state is rapidly becoming one system in one state. And I think has actually made it harder for them to talk with Taiwan because they've watched what's happened. Yeah. In fact, I think the one country, two system was not supposed to work anyway. And Beijing kind of knew that. 
because I like to point out that actually the very first experiment of one country, two system was actually done in Tibet. Because when China annexed Tibet in 1950s, the deal with the Tibetan government, with the Dalai Lama, was actually to let Tibet have some sort of autonomy under the communist regime. And that quickly broke apart. Uh, why else would we see Dalai Lama now living in India, right? And so the deal with Hong Kong was similar to that, and it's only a necessity that eventually it didn't go as far. I mean, well, in the Tibetan case, though, I mean, you have a Buddhist system, which is, I think, fundamentally not reconcilable with the totalitarian model that Mao had developed and that Xi Jinping is implementing. I'd been looking at China since about 1960, and I had completely misunderstood Deng Xiaoping and thought of him as a modernizer in a broad sense, when in fact he apparently wanted to modernize the economy in order to keep people comfortable with the dictatorship, which almost nobody in the Western elites understood that. And I confess I was one of them. But in that context, it's hard to imagine how a Buddhist theocracy could ever have been compatible with the essence of the Chinese communist totalitarian system. Am I missing something, or is that a core challenge for Xi Jinping, that his very system requires that it absorb and change almost everything it touches? I think, Mr. Speaker, you are exactly right. And I would actually argue the same in the case of Hong Kong, because the people in Hong Kong have had some taste of freedom under the British rule. Not exact democracy, but at least people got to vote to certain offices, not the chief executive's office but at least some local lawmaker's office. And so I think the Hong Kong people had some taste. They had one step in the free world. And that's exactly what's not reconcilable with the communist regime in China. So it's bound to end, in my view. It's very sad to see what's happening, but I think it's a necessity. I'm curious. You're at Shantou University for your bachelor's. Then you go to the University of Hong Kong. Then you go to Northwestern. Which was the bigger culture shock, to go from Shantou to the University of Hong Kong or to go from Hong Kong to Northwestern? I would say definitely the transition from Shantou to Hong Kong. Mr. Speaker, I have to tell you this story. It really shocked me when I first arrived at the University of Hong Kong, the oldest university in Hong Kong, and I stepped into the campus. And one of the very first things that I saw was a gigantic sculpture in red color, bloody red color, dead body piling up to the top which is known as the pillar of shame. I didn't know that back then. I was like, what is this ugly, disturbing thing standing right here? And I came up close and looked, and it's built to remember the Tiananmen Square massacre. So I said to myself, what massacre are you talking about? Nobody died in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Of course, people did, but I did not know because that was what I was taught growing up under Chinese propaganda. So it was really shocking to me. And then I went to the library of University of Hong Kong And I came across a bookshelf full of books about the events back in 1989. So it's a shock to me in the sense that I did not realize propaganda was so powerful. It changed people's mind and manipulated information that people can absorb. So I spent weeks just watching all the documentaries and reading all the books about that particular historical event. And that really turned my life around because I said to myself back then, I need to study propaganda. Because that's what changed my life up to the point I came to Hong Kong. Information is really powerful. I'm curious about this. 
as you point out, and it's a great problem we're now wrestling with here, you have people who are willing to basically eradicate history in order for you to learn their version of history. How big a shock was it to you to realize how totally you'd been lied to? I was in tears, excruciating pain, watching those footages back then of the soldiers shooting innocent students and residents in Beijing. It's saddening, not only because it was a tragedy, but it was because I thought before I went to Hong Kong that I was one of those more open-minded people in China. I live in Guangdong, which is a province that's already under less control by Beijing. And there were magazines and newspapers that are more brave in terms of saying things that Beijing didn't like. And I grew up reading all those newspapers. So I thought I was already on the frontier of the truth. And so the real pain was really to realize that I did not know anything about the Tiananmen Square massacre. You know, it's fascinating parallel. There's a book called Fleeing Moscow, which is the highest-ranking Soviet official to defect. And he describes at the beginning of the book that he had been sent to be the number two person at the United Nations. And so he gets off the airplane, gets in a car, drives downtown to the then-Soviet residence. This is early 1980s. And he said, as they're driving downtown, he notices that there are all these little tiny grocery stores. And they all have fruit and vegetables sitting outside without any guards. And he said, it suddenly hit him that everything he'd been told about poverty in America was a lie. And that it was a totally different system, dramatically better for normal people than the Soviet system. And he said, by the time he got to the residence, he'd already decided he would defect. He just had to figure out how to do it. And it's a similar thing. But I'm curious because you mentioned the relative openness of Guangdong. You know, the other great center of financial activity is Shanghai. How do you compare the two cultures, the South China culture and the Shanghai culture? The South China culture, I would say, is closer to what people would describe as the new rich, and the Shanghai culture would be more of the old rich, because simply the time sequence of the event that the Guangdong was the province that was first opened up. The place I went for college, Shantou University, Shantou is actually a city, one of the four cities when the first experiment was done to allow more trade to happen. And the university I went, Shantou University, was basically half funded by the richest man in Hong Kong, Mr. Li Ka-shing. And so it was a time when Guangdong was first getting more interaction with the outside world than Shanghai. So it was more of the new rich mentality that they had being more exposed to. Growing up in Guangdong, we also had television channels from Hong Kong. And every now and then you would see some interruptions and then the Chinese government would stick some public interest advertisement because there was something on the television in Hong Kong that the people in Guangdong are not supposed to see. And so you see this kind of soft blackout. And growing up, I remember that kind of blackouts are more and more frequent, not because Hong Kong was more and more open, but because what was considered intolerable to Beijing is more and more frequent. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. One of the things that you developed coming out of all this is the Policy Change Index. Tell us about that project. Yeah, so that was exactly coming out from the shock that I had arriving in Hong Kong when I realized manipulation of information is so powerful. And so what dawned on me was that now I'm out of my mind. That's what I thought when I was in Hong Kong. I was out of my mind because I was out of the mind that was previously manipulated by propaganda in China. So now, if you think about the Chinese propagandists as a puppeteer, right? So back then, when I arrived in Hong Kong, was I realized I'm no longer a puppet. I'm in the audience now watching the puppet show. And so what I should do is I should record and collect all the information coming out from China's propaganda machine. And I should analyze the play, how the puppeteer manipulate the population in terms of information, because that turned out to be very informative of their intention. Now, I didn't know even then I was in Hong Kong, after I got to America, that I realized that was a standard practice in the intelligence agency. It goes all the way back to Second World War, where what turned out an agency that turned out to be later part of the CIA was analyzing Nazi propaganda by listening to radios, Nazi radios. And what they were able to do was to predict the time of deployment of German secret weapons. It was not something Hitler was supposed to tell the people, right? tell the rest of the world, but it was something that was picked up by the analysts at what later became part of CIA. The reason that worked was actually that even though you, there's something that's supposed to be secret, you probably sometimes unwillingly or unconsciously let out in your propaganda apparatus. As I understand it, you somehow are monitoring and screening data flow and then capturing it for your index. And a lot of this is being done with machine learning. 
because otherwise you would drown. You'd never have enough people to do this. So how does that work? It's almost like magic. Yeah. So if you imagine you were actually reading Chinese propaganda newspaper, like think about the People's Daily, the China's version of Pravda. Like if you were to pick out the time when you think the mindset of the Chinese Communist Party has changed, how would you do that? Typically, you would pick out a newspaper and look what's above or below the fold, or maybe what's on the front page versus what's not on the front page. And if you detect the tide turning, you will see the Communist Party saying something differently on the front page than what it used to say. Right? Imagine you were at the moment in late 1970 after Mao died, but before the economic reform started. If you looked at the newspaper, there was a very obvious turn of tide. Because before that, when Mao was still alive, what's on the front page typically was about class struggle is crucial. We need to put the capitalists in jail, right? Because they were a, a counter-revolutionary. After that, what you would see on the front page was that market is not the evil, because market could give us wealth, and that's something in the capitalist elements that we could learn from. The Chinese government actually said that to the Chinese people. A year or two before they actually implemented the economic reforms. So the way I think about it is that sometimes for certain policies you would need a population to coordinate with the government, despite the fact that China does not have democracy. Nevertheless, you still need cooperation or coordination with the economy, and so sometimes it would take convincing of the public before you could roll out certain policies, especially unpopular ones. You have to convince the people. So before the crackdown in the Tiananmen Square, what the government said was that at the beginning the students were good people; they loved their country. Hence, they make suggestions about, you know, anti-corruption. But later on, they became morons, right? Because they tried to de- destroy the future of the country. And the government changed all their talking points way before they started shooting students. It seems to me that Xi Jinping has a remarkable understanding of the importance of propaganda. Much more than anybody since Mao, and that they have used artificial intelligence and technology to have a level of information control that we've never seen. It, it's sort of George Orwell in 1984, except it's real, and vastly more powerful than the Soviets ever were. What's your reaction? On the one hand, you're in a country that is having a certain amount of turmoil. But we're still relatively open, and we're still fighting each other in a relatively enthusiastic way. On the other hand, you've come from a country which I think, over the last 15 years, has actually grown tighter in its controls. How do you interpret what you see happening inside China, Mr. Speaker? You are exactly right. The change in the policy direction in China did not, in my view, start from Mr. Xi Jinping. It started before him, the last president, President Hu Jintao, because that's what I exactly picked up with the policy change index around the year 2003. That was one year before former President Hu rolled out his Harmonious Society campaign. So what we saw in 2003, before the actual policy happened, was that the government started to change how they talk about market economy. Before that, for example, if you think about state-owned enterprises. Before that, the general attitude before 2003 was that we ought to, at some point, privatize all of them because state-owned companies are not efficient. Market is better. 
But after 2003, he started to say something totally differently. We need national champions. They were great. You know, they could work pretty well. <laughs> and the government started to support national champions or state-owned enterprises more and more after 2003. So all these policies that now we see as generally under tighter and tighter government control, it was something that was started in the middle of 2000s and way before President Xi came in. So as they went through this tightening up and this transition. Away from market-oriented, back towards socialist and government-dominated systems. I also noticed, and it's kind of fascinating to watch. They had a conscious strategy of going after the big rich. I mean, if you were one of those people who was an entrepreneur, had built one of the biggest companies in China, you were actually sort of in the crosshairs of the Chinese government coming after you. Didn't that have a demoralizing effect? It certainly does. And I think that's a trade-off that Beijing is apparently willing to make, because one of the driving factors back in 2003, before the Chinese government really made the turn from market economy to more socialism, was all the social problems that they saw in early 2000s. There were inflation, government corruption, and there's a general sentiment that the society was not fair. There was regional disparity. There's income inequality between urban and more rural areas, or even within cities. Right? If you go to any big city, Shanghai and Beijing, you see people. You could see a drastic difference in terms of the income level between those who have the privilege and those who are just working in the factories. And that has hurt the legitimacy of the Communist Party. That's something President Hu Jintao saw clearly when he first took office in 2003. So. It was a trade-off that they were willing to make in the sense that they were willing to sacrifice a little bit of market economy's efficiency in exchange for solving some of these social problems that would hurt them in terms of the popularity of the Communist Party in the poor population. So, in a sense, what you have is a Beijing alliance with the poor to punish the rich, so that the poor kind of think of it as justice. Right, and that's precisely why. President Xi Jinping now still remains a very popular, especially among the poor class. His popularity was first aided by when he first took office the anti-corruption campaign. But more and more so, poor people they realize that yeah, of course, if you rob the rich, right, we could get a lot of benefits. And some people in China they like him for that. So, in that sense, has there been a increased stream of revenue to the poor? There has been. For example, there has been significant increase in the retirement to the retirees. The government payment to them, in terms of the monthly paychecks, has seen significant increase. And the older generation, they're more satisfied with how things are now. From BBC Radio Four, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast. Is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. One of the things that's become more obvious that I think went on, but we just didn't pay attention to it, is this whole concept of disappearing. I did a podcast a while back with somebody who had been disappeared and then ultimately got to the U.S., and it's eerie the way they do it. Could you comment on the whole system of disappearing people? Mr. Speaker, were you referring to dissidents who had disappeared from the public views? In the case of, I think, the most famous female movie star in China, she was gone for like six months until she confessed that she cheated on her tax. The disappearing always ends with the person who's been disappeared showing up and saying, you know, it was all my fault. I'm really sorry I made the police do this to me. And if only I had done the right thing, it would never have happened, which just happened again with the tennis star in the last few weeks. But this whole notion that they don't, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't tell your parents or your wife or your child, they don't tell your lawyer, you're on the way to work and you disappear. And then eventually, if you agree, then you reappear. I mean, it's the opposite of the American model where you'd have so many lawsuits, it'd be unbelievable. Well, in their system, ain't nobody going to sue, because if you're going to sue, you never reappear. Well, that's the norm rather than exceptions in China. It has been that way since the very beginning. My favorite story was actually the last emperor of the Qing dynasty. And so after the Communist Party won the war, initially the last emperor was held captive by the Soviet Union. So after the war, Soviet Union and China had this deal, and so they're going to send this guy back to Mao. And so Mao saw the value of that guy, right? Because he represented what's the worst element in history up to his point. And so what they did was they put him in a concentration camp, basically like one of those forced labor camps now, getting worse and worse in the Xinjiang area. But it was all over in China since the very beginning. So they put him in, and he was forced to work in jail for many years before he actually confessed to his crimes. And what the Communist Party did was to try to get him to confess. And it didn't work at the beginning, but you know, after you work in a forced labor camp for several years, maybe you would. And he did. And so he wrote what appeared to be a heartfelt letter saying that I was wrong, 
you know, all this everything in the past was wrong, feudalism was wrong, and the Communist Party is great. So this is how they did all this all the time. And the purpose of that was to use these people, famous people or well-known people, as an example. So again, going back to the power of propaganda, these kind of things were what set the precedence for other people to say, if you don't behave, you know, you could be disappeared for a while, and then eventually you still have to admit your mistake. Was that the Emperor Pu Yi? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because I think Callista and I visited his residence in Manchuria. Once he apologized and he confessed he was wrong and he paid obeisance to Mao, you know, they set him up in a nice little place. I mean, it wasn't anything like the imperial city, but it was still not bad. And you have this sense of this little guy who just, you know, was kind of totally confused by life. I mean, he'd been raised to be an emperor. The empire was gone. I think he was initially manipulated by the Japanese and then ended up being manipulated by the Soviets and then was manipulated by the Chinese communists. And then finally was allowed to retire and eventually, you know, passed away. But it's a fascinating place and I can't remember which town it's in, but it's in Manchuria. And of course, Mao in that sense was a propagandist. One of the things I think is really understudied is the degree to which Chinese communism is essentially pure Leninism. And Lenin was a genius at understanding the power of molding people's minds. One of the things when we did research for our book on Trump versus China, I had no idea that Deng Xiaoping had spent a year at Lenin University in the 20s. He got all of this and also was so loyal that even living through the Cultural Revolution and having had his grandson, who I think had both legs broken at one point, being pushed from a third or fourth story building, he was a true believer, which I had totally misunderstood because I thought the Southern tour and the black cat, white cat routine, I thought he was the beginning of opening up And then I realized one day, going through all this stuff, no. He wanted to open up the economy precisely to keep total control on the political side. Right. So in hindsight, of course, now we know a little bit more. But during the Southern tour, Mr. Speaker, I wasn't even born. So (laughs) I did not have the opportunity like you did to watch him. And so had I been able to do that, I would probably have made the same mistake. But in hindsight, though, if you look back to his tours to other countries, we should recognize that Deng Xiaoping not only has learned for the Soviet Union, the Grand Master, he was also one of the more open-minded Chinese leaders in terms of observing what's happening in the West. He has traveled to places like Singapore. So Singapore was frequently touted as an example for China's how to run authoritarian regimes. And what Singapore is known for is all sorts of a softer or more subtle control of the population, which is exactly what China has been doing since then, because you mentioned, Mr. Speaker, of all the Chinese influence now in our society. That's precisely how propaganda worked in China. What Beijing has learned was that you need to gradually change people's mind toward a view that's more in favor of you or the way how you would rule the country. And that's why if you look at a propaganda campaign done by the Chinese versus what's done by the Russians, there's a very distinctive difference. The Russians are more focused on misinformation or disinformation, making something that's fake, right? As recently revealed in the New York Times in relation to the Russian aggression on Ukraine. But what the Chinese focused more was actually not so much as creating fake information to fool the people, but more on trying to paint China in a more positive light to foreigners. Because they realized that's how you could gradually change people's minds and then gradually become more aggressive and be successful being that way. 
which is something they apply also to Americans who want to do business in China. So tell me, when you saw Putin come to Beijing, what was your reaction? What do you think the meaning was of their long statement and their sort of mutual commitment? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that statement because it's kind of vague and broad. Because they also mentioned that the cooperation between China and Russia would not have any limit, right? So the cooperation could be any kind. It doesn't say that it would be military. It doesn't say that China would help the Russians if Russia invaded Ukraine. But it also could be brought in the sense of other type of supports, because we have known that over the years since 2014. Russia has been working hard to sort of sanctions-proof the economy, because that's the lesson they learned from 2014. So since then, for example, they have been hoarding foreign reserves. They have been trying to be spending less in terms of the government's resources, just so that even under sanction they could still operate. And they started to export more energy to China, and China now is the major export destination of Russian energy. And so all these would create some sort of a cushion when the West does sanction Russia if Russia invades Ukraine, and China could obviously provide a lot of support for that. China, for example, could import even more energy from Russia. So I suspect that part of the negotiation or what they talked about was this kind of hypothetical scenarios about how much China would be willing to support Russia if it does invade Ukraine. But I think overall, the general gesture is to be expected in the sense that because the United States have now emphasized more and more of working with allies, right? So the only consequence we should expect is that our competitors and adversaries they would come together as well. I hardly find this surprising, but of course the uncertainty is exactly how far China would go in terms of supporting Putin, and that's not 100% clear just yet. I think. So let me ask one last thing, which is a topic I've been very involved in. I noticed that on January 21st, you tweeted, "Remember Huawei? The issue has been fading in the public eye since the U.S. pressure campaign against the company started, but we have every reason to continue to talk about it because the subject still matters to national security." What are your concerns about Huawei? So my concern about Huawei is a concern about overall companies that are now directly or indirectly under control by Beijing. Which can amass a lot of information about foreigners, and that's from a intelligence perspective. The research I do, the one you mentioned, the Policy Change Index, is one type of research that's called open source intelligence. The idea being that a lot of times to create in or generate intelligence, we do not need to rely on secrets like the intelligence community has for decades focused on. You know, for example, by cultivating informants overseas to spy on. Their own country on behalf of the United States. That's a secrecy-based model. But what's now more and more effective was that even if you just collect publicly available information, including, for example, Chinese propaganda, you could generate a lot of valuable intelligence. And that's precisely what China has been doing because there are a lot of Chinese companies working for Beijing in terms of collecting information overseas. They go after people of their interests and collect their social media data, personal information, where they have been. What they have done, and all this could potentially be very valuable intelligence, and that's what companies like Huawei are capable of, and sh have shown this evidence that suggests Huawei might be billing on some government contracts to provide this kind of intelligence service. And we have seen other companies that have actually done so, 
And so the problem about Huawei, in my view, is not exactly so much as the 5G equipment per se, but it's what the capabilities that it represent that would allow Beijing to do. And that's what really concerns me for the long run. So your policy change index project, is that available on site? Can people actually go look at it? Yeah, the best place to check out the details would be to go to policychangeindex.org. So in the spirit of open source intelligence, we made everything completely transparent and open. Anyone can download our source code. If you collect any other newspapers in China or the one that we collected, you can implement the same algorithm and pretty much get the same result. We'll link to that on our show page so people who want to keep track with everything you're doing can go there. And I really want to thank you. This has been fascinating. You're doing very important and very original work. And I think that it's great that you are so committed to help educate the rest of us. And I thank you and I wish you well. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. It's my pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Weifeng Zhong. You can read more about Russia and China's show of solidarity on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.